I'm Brian Hyatt, and you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. Today we're going to be talking about a really fun new book called Nothing But a Good Time, the uncensored history of the 80s American hard rock explosion. And it, it doesn't have the words hair metal in the title, but hair metal is definitely involved. And to talk about it, we have the authors, uh, Tom Bojour and Richard Beanstock. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for Thank having, you for us, having us. Absolutely. So why did you want to write this book? And you definitely made the choice not to say hair metal in the title. I, I can certainly guess why, but maybe explain those two things. Should I take this, Rich? Go for it. All right. Um, I think we decided to do this book because it is was unavoidable for both of us. Like we both grew up as total fans of this music and we've been actually probably talk it took four years to write the book but we were talking about it for about 10 years you know always just we should do this book we should do this book because it's really a topic that we do not fatigue of like last night i was watching warrant live youtube from 1991 and it was unrelated to anything to do with work to do with this book like i am uh tireless in my appreciation for this genre being i'm about to turn 50 um this stuff i mean i was like 15 and 86 so it was just being like beamed right at my head and so it's almost repaying a debt because it's something that's brought me such great joy might also be the only thing i know enough about to write a book is this music underrated rich um i think it is and to that Uh, One way to answer that question would actually be to answer the second half of your first question as to why we didn't say hair metal in the title. The obvious answer would be that, you know, that it has a lot of negative connotations to it. But beyond that, it's I I think that we felt it was a little bit limiting because what is what exactly is hair metal? I mean, the, the book has a lot of Guns N' Roses in it. Is Guns N' Roses hair metal? You know? I mean, some people might say, yes, they're a part of it. A lot of people would say no. Yeah, I'd say no. Yeah. Um, but a bigger part of that, too, is like we, we said 80s hard rock because really this is the hard rock of the 80s. Like, I don't know what else you would point to that really characterizes hard rock in that era. You know, you can start getting into heavier stuff like Metallica, but that's obviously metal. But if you're just looking at hard rock music at that time, like this is what it was. This is what it looked like. This is what it sounded like. So, you know, I think that also speaks to your the question you just asked, with, which is, is it underrated? It is because it wasn't just this sort of subsection of rock and roll that was going on in that era. Like it literally defined the era. And it also is a sign. It was. It's a. It's a sign of respect, and it was a signal. I think the whole time to the people we were interviewing, a lot of the musicians from this era will begrudgingly accept the moniker of hair metal because it facilitates in them being put on tours or marketing or being on the this radio station or that radio station or this compilation or that compilation. But I don't think any of them enjoys having their life's work. Uh, sort of tagged with that, you know, so as a show of respect, we also didn't do it. And, you know, it was it was a discussion because it's possible that it would have been a much clearer marketing bid to be like, it's that, you know, but we just we chose not to for for those reasons. Yeah, I know, like Sebastian Bach, for instance, absolutely goes nuts if if confronted with that term. He just doesn't see he's you know, he's like, I'm I'm a rock and roll singer. And I think I think that's 
that's fair, you know. But speaking of New Jersey, there's Bon Jovi here and there, but you didn't, uh, unless I totally missed it, you didn't directly include the Bon Jovi story. Uh, while you did include Skid Row, what was the uh, thinking there? I think that, I mean, we had... It's funny, the, the book is over 500 pages and we still had to have so many conversations about what to put in and what to leave out. And like, we actually had to be really strict about that because we could have, honestly, I, I think we could have written another 500 pages and like, I don't know how our publisher would have felt about that, but we would have been happy doing it. But when it came to a band like Bon Jovi, you know, it's twofold. One is that John Bon Jovi is not necessarily somebody that wants to talk about this era of his career. Um, he has made it pretty clear that he's moved on from it. He has established himself with a pretty separate identity from it. You don't see him giving interviews about it. Uh, you don't see him associating with it. And so we, we accepted the fact that we weren't going to get him for the book. And we were okay with that. The other reason being the bands that we chose to follow their whole careers throughout the book as sort of a through line were also bands that helped to tell the larger story about the scene. And the thing that's interesting about Bon Jovi is that while they are such a big part of it in terms of how they touch the other bands, whether it's these bands going out on tour with them or, you know, John being instrumental in discovering Cinderella, discovering Skid Row and really giving these bands a platform, John's origin story and Bon Jovi's origin story sort of happens outside of the scene because it's so unique the way John comes about and he's a solo artist and, you know, he has a song that becomes, that wins a, a radio station contest, all this stuff that is sort of like, once he's established, he's very firmly in the scene, but telling the origin story of Bon Jovi was such, was so separate from what else was going on that it didn't seem necessary to the book. I think it's a really good answer. And you start, have to start getting into like uh, Southside Johnny and stuff that is just so far afield yeah. from the world of this book. But just as a, as a New Jersey native, I just had to ask. So let's talk about some of the early days of this scene in uh, the early part of the book. I thought it was really interesting, the idea, and obviously accurate, that uh, I think it's Quiet Riot and Twisted Sister were both actually 70s bands that just took so long to break through that they became 80s bands. And it was bizarre for them to witness how fast everything else happened after them. But maybe just tell their story and how it led into a lot of what followed, which is a complicated story on both parts, of course. Well, I mean, they, they were both, like you're saying, bands that had been going, you know, since the mid-70s and who particularly in the case of Twisted Sister was doing mainly covers on the East Coast. And they were making, you know, I think at one point, D. Snyder of Twisted Sister says that adjusted for inflation, he was making like $250,000 a year playing covers on the East Coast. They were packing places. On the West Coast, Quiet Riot and a lot of other bands, I think, were these 70s bands who thought that when Van Halen got signed that they were going to be and became successful, that they were going to get picked up as well. But what actually happens is that no one gets signed after that. Van Halen is signed because he's really when you and Ted Templeman's book supports this because he was such a phenomenal guitar player that Warner Brothers was like, we're signing this guy. He's like Jeff Becker or, or whatever. But, you know, there wasn't an appetite for more hard rock bands. The labels wanted the Go-Go's. They wanted the Knack. They wanted the next Elvis Costello. And the hard rock bands that had started in the late 70s were really regarded as anachronistic, like these dinosaur 
bands that no one wanted to touch. You know, and you see, you'll see flyers from the whiskey in the 80s and it's like the germs, the go-go's, blah, 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 and then like Quiet Riot stuck in. Quiet Riot had already peaked, you know, and they had sort of broken up. Kevin Dubrow was functioning as Dubrow. Um, and th they sort of got like this weird spec deal, you know, with the producer, uh, Spencer Proffer. And he begs Epic Records to put out the, the record. And he goes to the meetings and the people at Epic are like, this record sucks. We don't want to put it out. You know, and he, he begs them and begs them. And the Quiet Riot record, when it comes out and everyone credits with them with this, actually like rescues all of these bands from like they would never have gotten signed. But suddenly this thing comes out and with the help of MTV, it's huge. It knocks synchronicity out of the number one slot, you know. And, and so suddenly labels, major labels being labels are like, whoa, this, you know, there's a lot of money here. And that is the time at which people like George Lynch from Dokken and Dokken, who have been around since the late 70s, and even Nikki Six has been around since the late 70s, finally are able to get some attention from the major labels. And the same with Twisted Sister. I mean, Dee Snyder in our book says that basically for We're Not Gonna Take It, he took the entire structure of Come On, Feel the Noise. He's like, I'm going to take a drum <laughs> intro. And we're going to do this and that. And like he did it. He, he's not shy about it, you know, and he completely credits Quiet Riot breaking through, pulled in Twisted Sister. And then that pulls in a rat and then a number of other bands who had already been doing indie stuff. But it was really like the battering ram. That makes sense. I mean, the whole Randy Rhodes of it all is, of course, bizarre. But this is all his time in the band was before this. Uh, and it, it starts a situation that you see a couple times in the book where Ozzy comes in and either parties really hard with everyone, tours with everyone, or takes the guitar player of a band, right? So that's, or, or, or maybe in another member. So that, that's kind of a, a recurring theme, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, Ozzy, I mean, Ozzy is just a great person to have in the book because clearly people don't think of Ozzy Osbourne as hair metal, but he's such a part of this scene. And he's also, I mean, he's like the godfather and also the contemporary. And not too many people hold that position. You know, and one of the great things I think in the book is like, yeah, you have Ozzy coming in when Randy joins his band. You have Ozzy and Motley Crue on tour together and all those guys chiming in about what that was like and, you know, the, the craziness that ensued there. And then you also have these much tighter stories where you have Ozzy and Sharon Osbourne talking about, um, you know, replacing Randy Rhodes when George Lynch and Jakey e. Lee, um, who had just left Rad and had been in Rough Cut, were, were the two guys sort of battling it out. And Jake and George are also in this conversation as well. And it's just great to get the perspective from all four of them about what was going on there. And, you know, I mean, it was, it was intense. Like George, I mean, George Lynch, great guitar player, and George Lynch kind of had that slot. I mean, he was out on tour with Ozzy, you know, I think when Brad Gillis was filling in after Randy died and was sort of like ready to take the mantle. And then Jake just came in and swooped it up, you know, and I think George is the one who says he, he believes it's because Jake had better hair than him. And <laughs> and Sharon actually, you know, in a She not, corroborated that. <laughs> yeah, Sharon actually, I mean, she says something to the effect that, that Jake had better everything than George, but... But yeah, it's just didn't great. O didn't Ozzy like basically tell George like, you're out, he's in? Yeah, and yes. Ozzy's Ozzy, right? I mean, what, what do you expect? He's not going to sort of like, you know, soft shoe it. He's just going to, he's like, that's it. But so it's, it's a, just a great story. And it also shows, 
I mean, it's funny, but then it also shows just how interconnected all these guys are from their own scenes. And then in terms of like the larger scene that they're going into, like there's so much cross-contamination between everyone. And it's just a great story in that respect. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Another running theme is Gene Simmons appears, tries to sign you, change everything about you. That That's another thing that happens a lot. Yes, Gene Simmons shows up, offers you a shitty deal. <laughs> and um, But I mean, the thing about him trying to sign Van Halen and telling them that their name sucks is like one of the best things. <laughs> like, that he's like, you know, he's like, look, I like you guys, but Van Halen, it sounds like he thought it sounded like Van Hoysen shirts. And so he proposed that they be called Daddy Long Legs, um, possibly with a Z. I forget, Rich. You'd have to. But he pro- and he produced for them a logo of a spider wearing like platform shoes and a top hat. Uh, Michael Anthony talks about this in the book, and 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 then he does. He reappears. He's uh, thinking about signing Cinderella. He's thinking about um, there's a couple other ones too. He always reappears trying to do a deal with people and it seems to never go through. I mean, ultimately the only band I recall, and they're not even in our book that got signed to Simmons records was house of Lords with Greg Jafria on and Keel, I believe, or or maybe Gene just produced them. But um, yeah. And I think there's also like later on in the late eighties, he wants to meet Stevie Rochelle from tough after seeing him in decline of Western civilization part two. And, And Stevie has a great line. You know, he's like, Gene Simmons wanted to meet me. You know, he's like, Kiss were 15 years old at that point. Like, that was the old generation. He's like, now, if someone told me CeCe DeVille wanted to meet me, he's like, I would have been floored. You know, but it just kind of shows how the tide was was turning by that point. That's amazing. So, there's a story I never heard before, which is, I think it's Warrant, came under the gaze of Prince, who wanted to have a hard rock band that he could kind of do his Apollonia thing. And that that's fascinating. I had no idea. It's a really, these are like the kind of weird things that surface when you're doing a book like this, you know, where, and the guys will mention it, you know, Jerry Dixon just mentions it in passing, like, oh yeah, and then the prince, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm sure this happens when you're interviewing people too, you know, like you kind of like have to like, cause for them, it's just like this weird, strange memory and you have to like stop them and make them drill down. And yeah, Prince was looking for a hard rock band. He had a, 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 a woman in L.A. who and originally basically this woman wanted Jerry Dixon of Warrant to be on her soap opera. She had seen him in an ad and she thought he was fabulous looking and he refused because he, he had Warrant. And so they convince and she works for Prince and they convince her to show their get their stuff to Prince. And he actually does pay for a demo for them, which is the demo that gets them signed. But he eventually sees a video of them performing and it was like, nah, these guys don't dance well enough. And then you, cause he, he really <laughs> wanted, you know, that full package. What would have happened with warrant if they had been signed by Prince is like, that's a whole alternate reality that we, we can examine. But like, there's all kinds of, you know, weird, Things like that that pop up when you're talking to five guys from a band who don't necessarily prioritize or know like what is incredibly 
interesting. And that those are the kinds of things we really tried to sort of drill down on in the book. You know, like you call each other after an interview, you're like, dude, dude, Warren almost got signed by Prince. And it's like, what? You know, and then and then and then you start asking other people and they all corroborate. And it's that's part of really the fun of doing the oral history thing. Yeah, and actually another Warrant story that's weird like that is their interactions with Michael Jackson around that same right. time, uh, which was another thing where somebody, I think it might have been um, Joey Allen from Warrant sort of mentioned it in passing. And then we got the designer on the phone, the co- their costume designer at the time, who we actually had been speaking with because he had also been working w- with Wasp years earlier. And we didn't even know the Warrant connection. Um, but he tells this whole story that part of it's in the book, but it was it was much longer than this, where through a series of events, he winds up being brought to Michael Jackson at like Universal Studios where he's rehearsing. And this is right before Bad, before Michael Jackson does Bad. He gets brought, he doesn't even know who he's there to see, but he basically gets brought onto this massive soundstage. Turns out it's Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson pulls out a crumpled up flyer from his pocket and it's a flyer of warrant. And this is before Warren's even signed. So they're a local band on the strip. And he basically wants Janie Lane's look with like the black leather and the belt buckles everywhere. And then somebody wheels in like one of those old school TVs, like on a cart, the way you'd get in like junior high in the 80s and sticks in a VHS tape of Warren performing at like the country club in L.A. And they're jumping around, they're doing their thing, dropping to their knees and all that. And Michael's like... They do all this stuff and their clothes don't rip. Like the crotch doesn't rip out of their pants when they're, you know, doing splits. Like, how does that happen? And so this guy winds up making clothes for Michael Jackson. And the clothes are those clothes that he wears on the cover of the bad record and in the bad video that become iconic. Um, And he makes some some statement. The designer does that, like, whereas Janie Lane is wearing it and it's like sort of this cheapo stuff and like concho belt buckles, like Michael's doing it. It's like rhinestones and all this like high-end material. But he basically, that that outfit that we all know and that we've seen a million times, like comes from Warren. That's amazing. And it, it reminds me that Christina Applegate reveals in the book that the entire look of her character from Married with Children was transformed after, I think it's after she saw the uh, the Western Civilization documentary and she based yes. the whole thing on that. It just shows how important this stuff was in the full cultural fabric of the times, not even just in hard rock, but it just, it permeated everywhere. I mean, I, I don't think you can really, it, it's hard to remember now or, or reimagine how ubiquitous it was. I mean, like Dial MTV every afternoon was all, you know, glam metal videos and there was Headbangers Ball and these bands were the pop music of the time. So it was not like a, it wasn't like, like uh, Rich was saying earlier, it was the hard rock of the time. This was not like some subgenre, you know, right. it, it wasn't a niche. It wasn't a niche. Yeah. It was like, yeah. you know, this was what you, if you turn on MTV, you saw this and everybody saw it, you know? Um, and not just people from hard rock are influenced by it. I mean, there's another Michael Jackson appearance in the book where he he's, sees Ricky Rocket at an at a award show. And Ricky Rocket goes up to Michael Jackson like, I don't know if you know who I am, Mr. Jackson. But, you know, I'm in this band Poison. And Michael Jackson's like, when your video comes on, and he's talking about the Talk Dirty to Me video, he's like, I stop everything and I sit down and watch it because you guys are having so much fun. I don't want to miss a second of it. You know, like people, everyone is seeing this stuff. And it's really informing 
you know, yeah, it's informing a, a lot of culture. I guess it's worth talking about bands that people don't talk about much these days, although certainly if you were a reader of Guitar World or, or writers for Guitar World and editors as, as you two were, they came up a lot. But Dokken is a band that used to come up a lot. And I, I hadn't thought the word Dokken in a, at least a decade until I, I encountered a in the book. And I think the funniest thing to talk about is, is the kind of, to me, hilarious conflict in the band where they just, everyone except the frontman didn't want to do ballads. And he's like the band's named Dokken. And it's just a whole thing. It, it's just, and I, they don't seem to have any idea how funny that is, but it's, it seemed pretty funny to me. Yeah. I mean, Dokken is an interesting story. I mean, especially in the early part of the eighties, like they're right there with all these other bands. I mean, they're, you know, they're on a lecture with Motley Crue. They're getting signed right around the same time as Motley Crue. They're another band that's been around for a while. Obviously, George Lynch was sort of, uh, you know, I don't want to say it, it was it was George, Randy, and Eddie were the three guys on the strip in the late seventies who were really the and, gunslingers. And George was insisting that he he started tapping before Eddie, et cetera, et cetera. There's all that. <laughs> yeah, like who who knows? Yeah, but they all they all think that they started the stuff, but um. <laughs> Yeah, and, and Don Dockin has been around even longer. Like, he's, he's really, like, one of the first guys out there. And then, and he's really a scrappy guy. Like, he just keeps trying it with new bands. And then he goes, this is all in the book, he goes to Germany and he lands this record deal with a French label and he puts out the first Dockin record, according to George Lynch and Dockin drummer Wild McBrown. He even steals one of the songs from their old band, which helps him get his Dokken deal. Although Don says that they lent it to him. It's, it's one of the first things that they disagree about in a career of disagreements. And it just kind of goes on from there. And then there's, you know, some alleged shadiness on the way the whole deal goes down and how the band becomes Dokken, which George claims wasn't supposed to be the thing. So even before they get into the studio together, um, they're pretty much at loggerheads, especially Don and George. And then it kind of just gets more insane and ridiculous from there uh, with some of the stories that go on in the book. Um, and it really shows how, you know, they were, they were fairly successful and they sold a lot of records, but who knows how much further they could have gone if they could have actually figured out a way to work together as a band. I mean, a lot of the adult, like we spoke to, uh, Tom Worman, who produced Tooth and Nail, and he, you know, talks about the animus between them as just being like really almost unbearable. And even Cliff Bernstein, their manager at the time, Cliff Bernstein, who now manages, you know, Metallica and Muse. And but at the time he had Dokken and he says, like, you know, I was young at the time I signed Dokken and I thought that I could hand, like if I had known if I was if it was me now and I understood that this rift between these two people was totally intractable, I would have walked away from managing this band. Like, it's one of these things that, and it probably did prevent them. I think a lot of things prevented them from being more successful. I think they never also looked particularly comfortable in their clothing. Like, I don't ever remember seeing Dokken and feeling, as, as a kid, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but just being completely sold on it. You know, there's bands that I would see and I'd be like all in on and Dokken, whether because they were trying to adapt, they were a little older and trying to adapt to the 80s look and trying to, you know, there's always like a little bit of unease. That said, you know, they do supply us in the book with some of the great moments like they did have the back lounge of their bus wired for video. And so, you know, they they would videotape 
themselves with female fans and like I'll be sitting in the front of the bus watching it and then other bands on the tours would be like yo can we use your back lounge with the video equipment and you know they went from black and white I think to color you know like it was so they they were as debauched as the others but there was also like this awkwardness that makes total sense I found the poison story pretty entertaining I knew about uh, and and that uh, a little bit pulls us into the Guns N' Roses area I think I'd talk to Slash about this, but I think you got the fullest version of the story of, of how uh, Slash almost joined Poison. So a weird historical intersection. Maybe t- talk about that and just the general arc of, of Poison. Yeah. Um, well, the po- when Poison comes in, and that's really sort of the start of the second wave of this L.A. thing, you know, you have your Motleys and your Rats and your Wasps and Dokken, like those those bands all get signed and they're on their major label way. And then you have Poison and Guns N' Roses and Jet Boy and Faster Pussycat, like these are all kind of the second wave bands, L.A. Guns. But the Poison story is super interesting because they are, I mean, they're they're sort of this very characteristic Sunset Strip band, but they're an East Coast band. And the story of them forming in Pennsylvania and then making their way out to the West Coast is is really an interesting and sort of unique perspective. And the thing that's interesting too about Poison is despite how big they are and how famous they, they still are, their origin story isn't really that well known because they don't talk about it that much. Um, so I think it was it was fascinating to hear a lot of this stuff and and sort of what they went through when they came out to the West Coast. Um, as far as the story about Slash almost joining the band, um, they came out to the West Coast with their original guitarist, who was a guy named Matt Smith. And I'll let Tom speak a little bit about that too, because Tom actually tracked down Matt Smith for what I think was his first ever interview, um, certainly his first ever extensive interview about Poison. But so Matt Smith leaves and they need to find a new guitarist. And so it really, it comes down to Slash and CC DeVille as the two guys. And actually a third guy who we didn't know at the time, but we interviewed him from the book, um, is a guitarist named Chris Weber, who was the guitarist in Hollywood Rose, the precursor to Guns N' Roses. He also tried out for Poison at this time. And but, Mike Hickey from Voin, we just found out Mike Hickey, who was in Venom <laughs> and is now smoking Joe Bonamassa's guitar tech, also tried out. I just found that out last week. It's not in the book. Hot, hot, fresh news here. So basically yep. everyone in L.A. tried out for Poison at this time. Um, but it comes down to, to Slash and CeCe. And yes, yeah, Slash has talked about this before. Um, I've interviewed him in the past where he's, he's told this story. And he's not, look, he's not a Poison guy, but he, he you know, clearly he saw something there. And he, he even says, he's like, I played the shit out of those songs. You know, like he was going for it. Um, but even he knew when CeCe walked in that... CC was the guy, you know, he talks about Slash came in and his like moccasins and whatever he was wearing and CC just came in looking like CC and he also came in playing Talk Dirty to me. So it was pretty inevitable that he was going to be the guy. But in the book, you know, it's cool because we have, I mean, Slash is talking about it, but also Matt Smith from Poison is there and, and Brett's talking about it and CC um, and Chris Webber. And you sort of, you get this real full 360 degree picture of what that was like and how Brett's talking about how he actually wanted Slash. He didn't want CC. The rest (laughs) of the guys in the band did want CC um, and he went along with it. But that's another thing, not, you know, not as serious as the docking thing, but Brett and CC were also like oil and water throughout from day one, but they knew that they needed each other 
Um, so yeah, it's, it's a pretty, to go back to the, what I was saying earlier with the Aussie, you know, George Lynch, Jakey Lee thing, it's just another instance of all these guys just being in each other's orbit and really like intersecting probably almost on a daily basis back then. And going back to Matt Smith, the other guitarist, what's really interesting with his perspective is he's probably actually the the more, in, in a strange way, well-adjusted. Like, it really makes clear, like, this, the psychographic that was required to succeed in this world and, like, that many people who came to L.A., the intensity of, you know, poisons living in a warehouse in a terrible neighborhood with, like, sheets dividing their spaces and cockroaches flying around and gangs outside, like threatening to kill them every time they go outside, you know, with no money. And for Ricky Rocket and Bobby Dahl and Brent Michaels, they're like, okay, cool, man, this is cool. We're going to make it, you know, this is, this is okay. And for Matt Smith, the guitar player, you know, he, he, a, his girlfriend, uh, becomes pregnant, but B, and this is really what Ricky Rocket and the other ones, and he says himself is like, he just couldn't hang with like the total chaos of trying to make it in LA. Like the the single-mindedness and sort of resilience that what that was required to survive in that scene, um, I think is something that is not that most people probably even though though they think they might have it, they didn't. You know, because um, Matt Smith, the, the original guitar player from Poison, I, he, you know, when you talk to him, you would think he would really regret having left Poison. But he's kind of just like, dude, I couldn't hang. I was going nuts. You know, it was just too intense. It was a very intense lifestyle. And not only that, you know, and th- this is underscored in the book. And, you know, it actually was even underscored when I talked to Rivers Cuomo about his going out very late in the in this era, but trying to make it there. The competition was so insane. There were like, someone says, I mean, probably not literally, but 40,000 bands that were just, and everyone was trying to get the super aware of getting the best looking person, the best playing person. It it was this, and I think you say in the intro, no one fell into this. It was this hyper competitive, hyper aware, show busy hothouse. And I think that's why, like, if you were Brett Michaels and you suddenly stumble upon CeCe DeVille... And you're like totally annoyed because he shows up at, at the audition not having learned any of your songs and is instead of like, hey, here's talk dirty to me. But you realize like suddenly the thing clicks. And for with that much competition, if you don't have the correct chemistry, you're not going to cut through. Like there, there were a million bands that were almost good enough. And like if you have like one weak link or one guy who's not compelling, you're probably not going to actually rise to the top in this scene so it is very competitive between bands and even within bands a little ruthless like you might have to cut your best friend if he's just not like if he's got he doesn't have the moves or he doesn't have the chops like gotta go you know there's there's no messing around it's like being a in pro sports or something now to take a step back maybe you could explain the lineage and development of the look of the big hair and in some cases the the really outrageous makeup and the feminized appearances, although without, like weirdly without any kind of, there's not a lot of sort of liberality about about gender or sexuality in the way that Prince bent things or, or the way Bowie did. It's a little different. It's just, it's pure look. It has a different sort of connotation to it, which is really interesting to me. So how did all that develop? And, and was there a sort of one-upmanship with like size of hair, amount of makeup, or how did it, how did it all kind of go down? Yeah, I think that... Um... You know, an obvious place to look is just some of the bands that these guys were influenced by, whether it's just the regular sort of hard rock 
acts like Led Zeppelin or like, I mean, there's a huge Kiss influence going on. And there's also like a glam rock influence like Bowie and T-Rex and all of that and Slade and Sweet. But I think Kiss is significant because they're an example of a band that is doing this look, but without any subtlety and without any sort of femininity in the same. And, you know, yeah, maybe there's a little bit of it, but they're really using it in a way where it's more like we are other and we are like superheroes. And I think that's kind of what a lot of these bands latched onto uh, once you get into the 80s. And I think obviously Van Halen is a big thing with them as well, and especially David Lee Roth. And a lot of the bands that were on the strip in the early 80s that were also fans in the 70s, um, guys like Stephen Piercy from Rat and, you know, the Docking guys and all and Motley Crue and all these guys, like they talk a lot about David Lee Roth as like the guy. And that's another one where, I mean, David Lee Roth also has all these other aspects to him. He's funny, he's witty, like all these things. But, you know, in essence, he's also just like a battering ram in term visually and in the way he acts. And so I think those were the types of things that a lot of these bands were really glomming onto. And then I think you add in the fact that, like you were just mentioning, especially later in the decade, there's 40,000 bands on the strip or whatever, but there's also a lot of bands on the strip in 1980 and 1981. And you just have to be seen. And like, I don't know that there's that much room for subtlety, you know, and Prince like sort of, you know, playfulness. Like you really just have to like ram it home and into and really into people's brains like what you're doing and do it in the biggest way possible and as the biggest spectacle possible. And you do see these bands where like, yeah, it actually did matter how high your hair was and like your hair would be higher than the band that went on before you or after you and the clothes would be more outrageous. And especially, you know, your your guitar player would just have to shred more. I mean, like. And, you know, without, but without getting to the music part of it and staying on the visual side, I think while they were taking elements from a really long lineage of glam, you know, they really sort of grasped onto the guys that were using it more as spectacle than as commentary. And even, I mean, the last band I'd bring up is the Dolls, because clearly there's a Dolls influence going on. But the Dolls were even sort of on the edge of like, you know, doing it more as spectacle. Like there definitely is a femininity in what they're doing, but they are also taking it in a little bit of a different direction. And there's that one side of the dolls that I think these bands are really pulling from more than the other side. And I think that like, especially Poison, I won't speak, well, first Blackie Lawless was briefly in, the, of Wasp was briefly in the dolls, but Poison, the guys in Poison are fully hip. Like Nikki Six from Motley Crue, and then the guys in Poison are fully hip to the dolls like they're not like oh what's this thing? like you know and they're students of of rock music and they they understand this stuff and you know the look the <clears throat> there are bands also who we're following you know that but niels lozauer the one of the great photographers from this era does say you know like the prettier i made them in the photos the more they went out on the strip and the girls wanted to bang them like, i think that's quote unquote you know like there was an element where somehow this androgyny was uh, completely effective in, in somehow drawing this female audience. It seems... It was this aggressively heterosexual yes. androgyny, which is what the weird... That's the weird sort of uh, a, a twist on it all, I guess. And, but the, in the interesting thing is it doesn't last 
that long. Um, and you know, Alan Niven, I think it is who manages who managed Guns N' Roses, the one who mentions this, is that he thinks that aesthetically speaking, it really wasn't grunge that undid sort of the day glow big hair thing, but that it was Guns N' Roses. And that really, the second Guns N' Roses comes out, all of these dudes. I mean, there there were a couple bands who had really spearheaded and own the androgyny thing and the sort of this the outrageous like linebackers in day glow sort of like you know but i think for a lot of the bands they see guns and roses and they're like oh yeah jeans and cowboy boots and a t-shirt i feel way more comfortable with that and the look of all of the bands changes like immediately including poison including everyone else is suddenly you know dressing much more normally so you've really got like this window of like 82 to 86 where things are really like popping you know even by their second record poison have dialed it back mm-hmm. and i think a lot of that is guns and roses showing that it's okay and you know the uh, most of the dudes in these bands feel ultimately feeling much more comfortable you know sort of representing in that way yeah i don't i don't even think that there's any coincidence that Motley Crue, who are really the scene leaders for all intents and purposes, in 1985 are doing Theater of Pain in Hot Pink, and in 1987 they're doing Girls, 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 and they're on motorcycles in jeans and leather. You know, 87 is, yeah, the year to all of us, Guns N' Roses are first coming out, but they were around on the strip for a few years at that point, and they were doing their thing, and like the Motley Crue guys, and especially Nikki, were friends with them. Like they saw right. what was going on, and you see this, this sea change. Now, the story of early Guns N' Roses has been told again and again, including, you know, I, I took a shot at it myself. But it, it does feel like there's, you know, it, there's some nice fresh angles in here. What were you most happy about sort of adding to the, the Guns N' Roses historical record? Um, I think the story of Guns N' Roses is one we discussed a lot about how to handle because, yeah, there's so much out there. And like Slash has a book and Duff and Steven and, and like everybody knows the appetite for destruction story. So we were like, how are we going to give a fresh angle on this? And so the the answer was really to dive super deep into the pre-appetite stuff. And that meant, you know, in addition to the guys in the band, like really finding all these guys that were there at the beginning. So, you know, guys like Chris Weber from Hollywood Rose and guys like Rob Gardner, who was the first drummer in Guns N' Roses and who was also in LA Guns with Tracy Guns. And Tracy Guns is a big part of the book as well. And what we really tried to do, and also guys around them like, you know, Mark Cantor and like these guys that were shooting them and Alan Niven. And so, you know, as a big Guns N' Roses fan, I've read this early stuff about them before as well. And even no matter how many times I read it, it's still confusing to me because there's so much. It really is because of the, there's there's too many other bands, too many extra people. It's extremely confusing. And beyond that. I've written about it and I still can't get it straight. Right. And beyond that, it's like, well, Slash is in Hollywood Rose and then he's out of Hollywood Rose and then he's back in, but then, you know, and then Guns N' Roses starts, but then he's out again. And then he, so it's like, you can't even follow what's going on. So we really just like started right at the beginning and we're like, okay, you know, and really the beginning is like, it's like, Tracy Guns and Rob Gardner talking about like being at Fairfax High School with Slash, you know, and like we start there. And then you see how this whole thing builds and it's like Tracy Guns meeting Izzy and then, you know, these kind of bands circling each other and then Axel joining LA Guns for a while. And then it gets to this point where Hollywood Rose has been going on and off for a while. LA Guns has been in and out for a while and, and Axel and... Tracy Guns are sitting around, like, I think maybe even at Tracy's house or something. They decide they're going to start this, like, 
side project type of thing. And they're like, what should we call it? And it's like, you know, it's Axl Rose and Tracy Gunstein. And they were like, call it Guns N' Rose. And then Tracy says that. And then Axl's like, Guns N' Roses. And Tracy's like, yeah, that's a great band name. You know, and there, and there you have it. So it's like this whole long path to get there. Um, and it was just super interesting. It was great to tell the story. And also it was great. Like, I just wanted to know it and understand it for myself. Totally. Uh, in the the minute we have left, who is the most musically underrated band out of all the ones you you wrote about in this book? I say Warrant. I, wow. Okay. I think um, Janie Lane was uh, his songwriting chops were like really, really, really sharp. I think you know had like he was as good as probably like some of the pro songwriters around at that time. Like a, he could hang with the Desmond Child or whatever. I think. Um, the, some of their antics and histrionics and, and sort of their, their guitars with Trojan condom logos on it and stuff detract from that. But like he, you know, there's like slick key changes and just like from a craft level and even from a lyrical level, I think that, you know, if you, if you dig down into like the warrant records, there's like good, there's really good songwriting and actual tasteful singing there. And I think that he, because of, you know, the cherry pie video, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, does not get the credit that he deserves as like an actual musician. Fair enough. What, which song should people check out to, to prove your point? I would say bed of roses off of cherry pie is an excellent song. I I've once listened to that about 23 times in a row in college, just because I forget what I, why I was, what I was freaking out about, but really, you know, if you listen to the first two warrant records, you will be surprised. Like, it's not like just, you know, gross, dumb pies falling into people's laps. It's, it's really good power pop. You know, it's, it's, I'm a cheap trick fan. I've seen them 50 times. And like, that's, I think, sort of my through line is like really good guitar pop. But yeah, Better Rose is a good one. Nice. And, and uh, Rich, real quick, your, uh, mm -hmm. your, your choice for most underrated, assuming it's a different one. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would say I, I agree with Tom. Like, Janie Lane is an actual, actually is a really underrated songwriter. You know, a band that I've always loved that was somewhat popular, but I feel like should have been more popular is Faster Pussycat. Uh, they're in the book a lot. I think their first record is just a prime slice of like mid-80s sunset strip sort of sleazy debauch you know sort of it really just puts the lifestyle right in your face and right in the music in a way that a lot of these other bands that sang and wrote about it didn't really capture it uh, with the same sort of grit and I just think it's a really sort of classic unheralded album that that you know people are into this stuff and really want to sort of get a record that like drops them right in it I think that's a good one all right, well, that's our show for today. Thanks so much to Tom Bojour and Richard Beanstock, whose book is nothing but a good time, the uncensored history of the 80s American hard rock explosion. And we'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, Rolling Stone Music Now is a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts, Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. That's always appreciated. But as always, stay safe. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome. 
Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.